I encourage you this morning to take your copy of God's Word. Let's turn together to Habakkuk chapter 2. Habakkuk chapter 2. Now this morning, we're going to be looking at a larger passage of Scripture uh, because in order to keep the context and to keep these things together, we need to look at all of these verses at once. So we're actually going to finish the entirety of chapter 2 this morning. Now, do not sit in abject horror at the consideration of that. I promise you it will, it will not be uh, that uh, we will move through these rather rapidly in order to, uh, to begin to grasp the context of what's happening here. But Habakkuk chapter 2, let's stand together, uh, and we're going to begin reading at verse 5. Verse 5, Habakkuk chapter 2. Furthermore, wine betrays the haughty man, so that he does not stay at home. He enlarges his appetite like Sheol, and he is like death, never satisfied. He also gathers to himself all peoples and collects to himself all peoples. Will not all of these take up a taunt song against him, even mockery? and incitations against him, and say, Woe to him who increases what is not his! For how long, and makes himself rich with loans? Will not your creditors rise up suddenly, and those who collect from you awaken? Indeed, you will become plunder for them, because you have looted many nations. All the remainder of the peoples will loot you, because of human bloodshed and violence done to the land, to the town, and all its inhabitants. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to put his nest on high, to be delivered from the hand of calamity. You have devised a shameful thing for your house by cutting off many peoples, so you are sinning against yourself. Surely the stone will cry out from the wall, and the rafter will answer it from the framework. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and founds a town with violence. Is it not indeed from the Lord of hosts that peoples toil for fire and the nations grow weary for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to you who make your neighbors drink, who mix in your venom even to make them drunk so as to look on their nakedness. You will be filled with disgrace rather than honor. Now you yourself drink and expose your own nakedness. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter disgrace will come upon your glory. For the violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, and the devastation of its beasts by which you terrified them, because of human bloodshed and violence done to the land, to the town, and all its inhabitants. What profit is the idol when its maker has carved it, or an image, a teacher of falsehood, where its maker trusts in his own handiwork when he fashions speechless idols? Woe to him who says, A piece of wood, awake to a mute stone, arise, and that is your teacher? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath in all inside it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. You can be seated this morning. I remind you again of where we looked last week at the opening of this chapter. As the prophet had positioned himself in a place to hear the answer from God, And you remember earlier on in chapter 1, this had been the prophet's cry. He was asking the Lord, Lord, what are you doing? And really the question would actually be, Lord, why are you not doing anything? Because as the prophet looked around, he saw the wickedness of God's people, and he desired for God to send revival to awaken his people, to draw them back to where they needed to be. And God answered the prophet by saying, I'm going to send the Babylonians, the Chaldeans to come, a far more wicked nation to come in and to bring correction to my people and to bring judgment upon them. 
and to draw them back to myself. And the prophet stood in abject horror of that. He, he, he could not believe that God would do this in such a way. How could God send someone so wicked to bring correction to his people? And you remember the Lord brought an answer to the prophet to understand and to see that God was doing his exact perfect purposes. And that in the end, he helped them understand that justice would come, that the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, would not be able to live out the fullness of their wickedness without also themselves coming under God's judgment and his punishment. And so God had given him a vision to read, a vision to understand that the appointed time would come when judgment would fall back upon the Babylonians for their wickedness and for their deeds. And you remember there in verse 4, again, we look back, he says, Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by his faith. Last week, we looked at that verse and we talked about the righteous man, the righteousness of God's people, that they believed God's promises that he would send judgment. They believed that, and so they attained to them righteousness. We talked about in the Old Testament how those who were saved in the Old Testament believed the promise of God that he was sending Messiah, and because of their belief, because of their faith, in the promises of God, they obtained into themselves righteousness. But there's a contrast in that verse that points the righteous one with the proud one. And he says, behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him. Because the Babylonians were elevated in their pride. They were arrogant. They didn't worship anything but themselves. They looked at all that they had accomplished, and they desired to worship none other but their own greatness and their own power. It was a self-righteous worship. And so, God here, he, he talks about the proud one, and he, and he illuminates that righteousness there. He says the righteous one lives by faith, but now in verse 5, he's going to go right back and talk about the Babylonians. He's going to talk about those who live with pride and arrogance. As the prophet waits here, God begins to speak, and as he does so, he's going to illuminate first the character of the Babylonians, but then what he's going to do, and I want to set some context in the rest of this chapter from verses 6 through 20, God gives what has been called a series of five woes against the Babylonians. These woes tell the story of what's eventually going to fall upon them. The evil and wicked that they have dished out will now be given back to them. They have filled up their plate, and now they will be forced to eat it. But as God begins to continue to describe the proud one, the one who is wicked, the one who is self-righteous, notice what he says there in verse 5. He says, furthermore, wine betrays the haughty man so that he does not stay at home. He enlarges his appetite like Sheol and like Death never satisfied. He also gathers to himself all nations and collects to himself all peoples. It's interesting that God here describes the Babylonians as a drunkard who has been deceived. He says, wine betrays the haughty man so that he does not stay at home. Now, the scripture tells us that wine is a mocker. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 1 says, Wine is a mocker, strong drink, a brawler, and whoever is intoxicated by it is not wise. We could go to many places in the Scripture where it talks about the dangers of the excessive use of alcohol. The Bible talks about the sinfulness of intoxication, and there's a reason because intoxication, drinking alcohol to excess, normally causes people to, as we would say today, to act a fool, to do things that they would not normally do 
to do things that, given a, solid, a sober state of mind, they would never have the boldness, the courage, or the, the brazenness to ever attempt to do. It also causes to believe people to believe that they are stronger and more powerful than they really are, often leading them to do things that end in their own injury. But there's a wisdom that comes that if you are one who is a leader, one who is over things, you are not to be given to intoxication, not to be given to strong drink. Proverbs chapter 31 says, It is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to desire strong drink, for they will drink and forget what is decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. Now, Habakkuk describes here, or the, the prophet here is being described by God as that the Babylonians are like a drunk man who is betrayed. He thinks that he knows the truth, but he is sorely deceived. They have built themselves up and they have drank so much upon their own pride and on their own arrogance that they've convinced themselves that they are greater than they really are. Just as the drunk man desires to get more and more and more because they are never satisfied, he soon begins to go out and to do whatever he can to collect from others. He says he does not stay at home. He enlarges his appetite like Sheol. The Babylonians were not satisfied with just having conquests in their own region, but they continued to go and to spread further and further out, desiring to eat up more nations and to devour them as their hunger continued to grow. He says he enlarges his appetite like Sheol. Now, we know Sheol is a descriptor of the place of the dead. And he says he is like death, never satisfied. You know, there are two things that this world says that you can't escape, and that's death and taxes. Death comes to us all. It's no respecters of person or social class. Hell is never satisfied with the number of people that it brings in. Satan desires to obtain as many people as he can to bring to hell alongside of him. In fact, Proverbs tells us Sheol and Abaddon are never satisfied, nor are the eyes of man ever satisfied. Proverbs chapter 30, the leech has two daughters, give, give. There are three things that will not be satisfied for that will not say enough. Sheol and the barren womb, earth that is never satisfied with water and fire that never says enough. The point is that the behavior of the Babylonians was that there was never enough for them. No matter how many people they killed, no matter how much money they obtained, no matter how large their empire grew, it was never satisfied. Satan will never be satisfied with deceiving as many people as he can and bringing them to hell until the day that Jesus returns. He will continue to grasp and to groan for people and pull all those that he can unto himself. And just like that, God says, is the nation of Babylon. Matthew Henry said, it is the sin and folly of many who have a great deal of wealth in this world, that they do not know when they have enough, but the more they have, the more they would have, and the more eager they are for it. I think we can see that clearly in the time in which we live. There seems to be no end of people's desire for money. People will give up the entirety of their lives. They will work themselves to the bone in order just to make a few more dollars. People will do all kinds of, of wicked things because they say, well, the money is worth it. They say, well, look at, look at how much money I'm making because they think that in the end, money is going to bring them happiness. Money is going to bring them success and comfort and plenty. 
And so did the Babylonians. The more money they obtained, the more power they had, the, the, the appetite was never satisfied. They continued to desire to get more and more and more. It was an insatiable desire for power. Look at what God says at the end of verse 5. He gathers to himself all nations and collects to himself all people. What was behind this? It was just pride. It was driven by the sheer thrill of what they received. The more power they got, the more power they wanted. It was never satisfied. And so it is when we seek comfort and anything else in this world besides Christ. If we seek comfort and success, if we seek our... The story wasn't over yet. The Babylonians had amassed this great empire. They had crushed so many thousands of people, killed men, women, and children, gathered gold and silver and other riches unto themselves. It looked like they were a kingdom that could not be defeated. But now here in verse 6, what God is saying is that it's not over yet. The last song has not been sung. And this is really what we see here in the end of this, in verses 6 through 20, is really what is actually called, these are called taunt songs. As one looked at the conquest of the Babylonians, this unstoppable force, now God says that in the end they would be crushed in the same ways, method, and means that they had used against other nations. These other nations are going to rise up, and in the midst of this destruction, they're going to taunt them. They're going to make fun of them. Now, it's interesting because oftentimes when we think about making a mockery of someone or taunting someone or making fun of them, we think of that as a negative thing, but we find this oftentimes throughout the Scripture. One commentator actually says that the word woe there should actually be translated ha, because this is basically what God is saying. And remember what Psalm chapter 2 tells us is that he who sits in heaven laughs at the wicked. He, he mocks them because they think that they have done a great thing, and he laughs in a mocking or a taunting way at them. And these are all taunt songs, and each one of these is five sections of three verses each, and all of them begin with that word, woe. It sets the topic for each of these taunts. Now, that word woe is used over and over again by the prophets. Isaiah used it 22 times, Jeremiah 10, Ezekiel 7, and throughout the minor prophets, it was used a total of 14 times. But each one of these sections describes a way that the Babylonians had afflicted different groups of people and how that same affliction was going to fall on themselves. The first thing that I want you to notice here is the woe of oppression or greed, because this is one of the supreme things that the Babylonians had done. Because they were driven by pride and arrogance and a desire for more, they had taken everything that they could as they moved into these nations. They were greedy. They desired to have everything unto themselves. And notice what it says there in verse 6. He says, "...and say, woe to him who increases what is not his." For how long? And makes himself rich with loans. Now, there's nothing wrong with someone who works hard and makes money. The Scripture tells us that if a man should, will not work, he should not eat. Scripture tells us that there's something to be said about a man who works hard. And, and in the world, if a man works hard, he's not deceived people. He's not done anything illegal or immoral or unethical, and he makes money. There's nothing wrong with that. 
But the riches of the Babylonians did not come from hard work or righteous hard work and toil, but it came from pure theft. They just moved into these nations and by their military might and power would go in and take what was not theirs in order to build their empire. The latter part of that verse in the King James says, "...and to him that laden himself with thick clay." And it was not a reference to physical soil or mud, but to the heavy pledge or loans that the Babylonians would use when they would conquest these nations. They would go in and what they didn't take, they would cause people to fall under these loans. You have to pay us back this amount of money or you have to give us this amount of riches. And they would burden these people down in order to drain them of their resources because they were greedy. They had the allure of riches. They desired to have all that they could have. Now, what's interesting is what God tells us here in verse 7. It was that suddenly, as as they had instituted these these burdensome loans, they had stolen all this money, they were collecting everything from these nations. Look at verse 7. He says, Will not your creditors rise up suddenly, and those who collect from you awaken? Indeed, you will become plunder for them. Have you ever gotten a call from a debt collector? I remember a few years ago, uh, someone else who, who had the same name as me apparently owed some money to a university in Tennessee. And this debt collection agency, I assume through a Google search, found my name and began to call me and harass me. And I'll never forget because they called me on my cell phone and, and they said, explained who they were, that they were trying to collect a debt of 20-something thousand dollars from this university. And I said, well, listen, I said, I don't live there. I've never gone to school there. You've got the wrong person. And hung up the phone. And I was sitting in my office here at the church. That was on my cell phone. Immediately as I hung up, the office phone rang. And it was them. And they were calling again would not believe that I was not this person. It took several weeks of stern phone calls and finally a letter threatening legal action before they finally relented. But that's what debt collectors do. They go in and they are relentless in the collection of their debts. And this is the exact language that God is using here. He says, you have been the debt collector. He said, and now those who you have been collecting against are going to rise up and they're going to come back and collect against you. They were going to be coming for collections of their own. Everything that the Babylonians had stolen from these people and from these nations would be returned to them and more. They had built such a hope on the wealth of their nation, and now all of this wealth would be taken away from them. It would become plunder for those who had been plundered before. He says, you will become the plunder for them. Now, why would all this happen? Why is all of this going to happen? Because they are reaping what they are, had sowed. The Scripture says that God has not mocked. A man will reap what he sows. We cannot expect to live our lives in abject sin. A, a lost person cannot expect to live their lives in complete rebellion against God and never face consequences for their actions. Now, sometimes those consequences come in earthly ways as it's going to happen here to the Babylonians, and sometimes those consequences are not obtained until that person dies and stands before the justice and the wrath of God. But verse 8 tells us the reason for this. He says, because you have looted many nations, all the remainders of the people will loot you. Because of human bloodshed and violence done to the land, to the town, and all its inhabitants. Jeremiah chapter 27 says, All the nations shall serve him and his son and his grandson, speaking of the Babylonians, until the time of his own land comes. 
and then many nations and great kings will make him their servant. Jeremiah chapter 30, Therefore all who devour will be devoured, and all your adversaries, every one of them, will go into captivity. And those who plunder you will be for plunder, and all those who prey upon you I will give for prey. It's hard to imagine the shift that happens here. This great nation that had arisen, the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, they had built such a massive empire. They had defeated all of the greatest military might in the land. They had conquered city after city, nation after nation, had amassed unto them such great wealth and power that it seemed there's no way that they could ever be overthrown. No way that they could ever be defeated unless some other greater military power rises up. But what's going to happen? God says, not is some great military might going to rise up against you, but all these nations who you have already overthrown, they're going to rise up and they're going to come back and take what is theirs. Judgment and justice is going to come upon the Babylonians by the hands of those whom they persecuted, those whom they committed bloodshed against. We see just the violence, and there's a theme that runs all throughout every one of these woes, and it's this idea of violence and bloodshed. It would be hard for us in human terms in America here in the 21st century to understand how wicked and violent the Babylonians were and how severe they were when they come in and they crushed these nations. But God is offering hope. He's offering hope to to Judah. He's offering hope to Habakkuk to say, listen, this will not go unpunished. This is is the the, the lament of the prophet from the very beginning because he, he begins to understand what God's going to do, but he still can't wrap his mind completely around it saying, God, will all this happen and these people not suffer the consequences for their actions? And God says, no, they will be defeated. The bloodshed that they have committed, they will pay in their own blood. And we need to remember this this morning. We need to remember because there are times that we look around and we can be tempted to ask God or question God in the same way. God, will this go on forever? How can you allow these kinds of things to happen? How can you allow this to occur and you not do something about it? The same promise is true. God will see that justice is accomplished. God will see that those who have sinned are punished, but he's going to do it in his own timing, just as he was going to do it in his own timing here. Because remember, the prophet here is not hearing God saying what's going to happen tomorrow. This is still a long time in the future. But God is giving him a hope to understand. He says, I have not forgotten my ways. I have not abandoned my faithfulness. I have not abandoned my holiness and my glory. I will accomplish my purposes, but you have to trust in my timing. And we have to trust in the Lord's timing as well. Because we can look around and we can see things happening in our world. We can see our nation. We can see across the globe different things happening. And we can begin to question and ask God those things. But God has promised he's still accomplishing his purpose. But we must trust his timing. The next woe you see there is in verse 9. And this is a woe of covetousness. Covetousness, we know, is desiring something that is not yours. It's, it's desiring to bring into those things. And again, we see a theme here. It's just this dis- continual desire for power and for that which is not theirs. But notice what this led them to do in verse 9. He says, woe to him who gets evil gain for his house 
to put his nest on high, to be delivered from the hand of calamity. The Babylonians were a covetous people. They wanted everything, but they brought all these possessions in, and it led them to a idea of self-exaltation. They wanted to be lifted up higher and higher and higher, and they believed that the more that they conquered and the greater they became, that they could never be stopped. If you were to study the city of Babylon, you find that the walls were around 100 miles in circumference, about 300 and something feet high, and I believe about 80 feet across that protected the city. It was a powerfully fortified location. And you can imagine in their mind, after they had built this city and had amassed all of this wealth, they're like, who can touch us? The language that's used here is the idea of an eagle who builds their nest high up on the cliffs because it removes them out of danger. It removes them out of the, of the, of the realm of anyone attacking them or prey coming to attack the nest. And so this is how the Babylonians were. They thought, we will set ourselves up high. We will set ourselves on the hill and we will fortify ourselves so that we cannot be attacked. Proverbs chapter 18 says, A rich man's wealth is his strong city and a high wall like a high wall in his own imagination. Before destruction, the heart of man is haughty, but humility goes before honor. Jeremiah forty nine sixteen asks for the terror of you. The arrogance of your heart has deceived you. O you who live in the clefts of the rock, who occupy the height of the hill, though you make your nest as high as an eagle's, I will bring you down from there, declares the Lord. They thought that they had built an empire that was unstoppable, but God is quick to remind them that just as easily as he allowed them to build it, he can destroy it. He can take it back down. We would do well to remind ourselves as we look along the the political climate of things in our nation that God puts rulers up and God takes rulers down. There is not a person who sits in a political office in this world, whether that be the school board locally all the way to the White House. There's not a person in a political power who has not been put there by the providential hand of God, either to bring us correction or to bring us blessing. And we have to trust that he knows what he's doing. But the more the arrogant try to build up their own power, God says, I'm going to bring you down. He says, you've built your nest high. You've put yourself up there because you think that you can avoid calamity. He says, but no matter how strong or tall or thick your walls are, destruction is coming against you. There's a danger when we exalt ourselves. He says in verse 10, you have devised a shameful thing for your house by cutting off many people. So you're sinning against your house. By cutting off many people, it's just talking about the destruction and the violence that they had had plagued upon so many. They had killed many, many people. But this bloodshed was not only a sin against those whom they had killed, but it was a sin against themselves because they would bear the penalty for it in their own body. He says, you are killing others and you're sinning, but you're also sinning against yourself because destruction will fall upon you for that sin. Now, it's interesting there in verse 11 because he says... Surely the stone will cry out from the wall and the rafter will answer it from the framework. What God is saying here is that there's no way that they can escape their guilt. Even if they could eliminate every resident of the nations that they had destroyed, 
If they could kill every single person, every man, woman, and child, God says you still will not escape your guilt because the very stones and the woodwork of the houses that you build will cry out as a witness against you because they've seen what you've done. The Babylonians thought, well, who will speak against us? Who will stand against us? But God sees all things, and God here in this poetic language says that even if you could, he said, even the very rocks and the wood will cry out against you. We're tempted to think sometimes that God does not see or that things are hidden from him. But the eye of the Lord is everywhere, and he sees all things. And we can trust that he will bring his justice upon it. The next woe that we see here is the woe of bloodshed. Look at verses 12 through 14. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and founds a town with violence. Is it not indeed from the Lord of hosts that people toil for fire and nations grow weary for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Again, we see this reminder of violence and bloodshed. And the Lord is crying a woe unto them because this is what they've built upon. They've not built upon a solid foundation. They've built it upon the blood and the backs of other people. Now, by earthly standards, they had built a massive empire. It was was a, a beauty to behold by earthly standards. But at what cost? The life of countless innocent men, women, and children. These buildings were built on the backs of slaves from these nations. They would bring in conquered peoples and force them to work and to build all this. And every single part of this served as evidence against them that would seal their fate in the courtroom of God. He would not allow it to go unpunished. He would not allow it to escape. They had built a great empire. But God says, if you don't build it upon the right foundation, it's all pointless and meaningless. And that is what he's saying in verse 13. Because what we see here is the Lord speaking directly. He says, is it not indeed from the Lord of hosts that people toil for fire and nations grow weary for nothing? The Lord is pointing out here that everything that they had built would all be destroyed. It's all fuel for the fire. What they thought of as great spoils would be proven in the end to be hay, wood, and stubble when God's refining fire was poured upon it. All the time, work, and effort they had put into this would all be nothing. It was an ultimate exercise in vanity. You remember in Genesis chapter 11, some people got together and decided, well, let's let's build a tower into heaven. Let's become great amongst ourselves, the Tower of Babel. And remember what God did. He said, come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there, from all over the face of the earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore, its name is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the nation of the whole earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad Upon the face of the whole earth, we see it again there, this picture. They put all this time, all this effort, but it was all futile because they were not building it upon the foundation of righteousness. It was all worthless because they were not building it in a way that God had intended. 
Psalm chapter 127, unless the Lord builds the house, they who labor, labor in vain to build it. God warns them that because they had built their city upon a foundation of violence and bloodshed, it was all for naught. It would all pass away. But he reminds them in verse 14 that even though their nation would be destroyed, and even though their kingdom would be conquered, that there was a true king who reigns in victory. He says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The Babylonians thought that their name would reign forever, that the name of their empire would spread upon the the globe and to strike fear into the hearts of many and to cause others to, to wonder at the greatness of the nation of Babylon. But the Lord reminds them here, Nope. There's only one name that will spread upon the earth. There's only one name who will reign and rule forever, and that is the glory of the Lord. As massive and rich and powerful as the Babylonian kingdom was, it was living on borrowed time, just as many other nations have been since. Egypt rose and fell. Rome rose and fell. We've seen other nations in our period of time, Russia, Germany, Whichever ones you want to point to, there are nations who have risen and nations who have fallen, but there's a kingdom that has been established before the foundation of the earth that will never fall. No matter how large or powerful an army is that tries to rise up against it, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ is without fail. Albert Barnes said this verse, being already a received image of the spread of the gospel, It would itself be understood to include this, but more generally it declares upon how all judgments of God, a larger knowledge of Him would follow. God is saying here that as the judgment fell upon the Babylonians, that it would not just be a judgment upon them that people would recognize, but people would recognize the glory of God in the midst of the destruction of the nation of Babylon. That it would cause people to look and see how great and glorious God was as this once unconquerable nation was reduced to rubble. We should remember that God's power and authority is above all. I think even as Christians, sometimes we can tend to look and think that there are nations upon this earth that have great power great might, great strength, and we think, well, what can be done? Remember, all it takes is a word from God. And the most powerful nation on the earth is destroyed. And we should remember and hope and trust and know that God has all things working together for His purposes. And if He's working all things together for His purposes, not a single leader or person or nation on the face of the earth will be able to overcome Him or to conquer Him. He will accomplish it in his time. There was a beautiful quote from Walter Chantry as he was talking about what's happening here because there's, there's an element in which God is speaking here of what's going to happen in Babylon, but there's also an element that he's speaking prophetically even, even to our day, that God will still continue to do this, that the earth is filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. Because what's happening here is that it, when, when Babylon is defeated and God's people are redeemed again and are allowed to go back to Jerusalem, what is happening here is, is that God's lineage of Christ is able to continue. 
Because Jesus' lineage was not cut off, the people of God were not totally destroyed so that the line of the Messiah that had been prophesied could not complete. So there's an element here which God is saying, I'm going to complete not just my work in redeeming you now, but I'm completing my work in redeeming and bringing Christ as the Messiah so that ultimately the gospel will be proclaimed. But listen to what he said. He said the Jews were severely chastised by the stick of Babylon. They would return to their land one day, and through them would come the Messiah, in whose face the glory of the Lord would supremely and savingly shine. A great missionary movement would take the gospel of this glory to the ends of the earth, and the Messiah would be the triumph of faith over pride. The glory of the Lord would shine in this moment, but the glory of the Lord would continue to shine by the coming of Jesus Christ. And that glory of the Lord would cover the earth, he says here, as the waters covers the sea, as the gospel goes forth to the nations. The next woe I want you to see here is the woe of the mistreatment of others. Look at verse 15. He says, Woe to you who make your neighbors drink, who mix in your venom even to make them drunk so as to look on their nakedness. You will be filled with disgrace rather than honor. Now you will yourself drink and expose your own nakedness. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter disgrace will come upon your glory. For the violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you and the devastation of its beasts by which you terrified them because of human bloodshed and violence done to the land, to the town and all its inhabitants. It pointed to the treatment of their neighbors. The language here, poetic language, it referred to a man who would get his neighbor drunk in order to take advantage of him in some way. Like getting your neighbor drunk in order that you can steal money from them or take advantage of something that they have. This is what the Babylonians would do because as the Babylonians would move out and just severely conquer some nations, there were some that they would come to and say, hey, let us be allies together. You come along with us and we'll work together to defeat our other enemies. But what would end up happening is that even though they would make allies with other nations, soon they would turn upon their allies and take advantage of them just like they had taken advantage of everyone else. He says, you, you trick them, you fool them as you would try to get them to drunk to come along with them so that you can expose them and you can shame them. He says, now you will be brought to shame and disgrace. Their behavior, especially in the deception of those who had promised alliances to them, caused them to be viewed in derision by all. The Babylonians would soon be uncovered and disgraced. The language that's used here, if you have the King James, it talks about the exposing of your foreskin. Because to the Jewish people, the, the ultimate mark of, of shame was to not be circumcised. And we understand that there's also the mark of, uh, in the Jewish culture that shamefulness was to expose nakedness to someone else that was not your husband or your wife, or someone's nakedness to be exposed was the height of shame. So the Lord's saying is that my justice is coming upon you. They said, you have filled up with drink to try to deceive others. He says, now you yourself are going to drink of that cup and your shame will be exposed to others. And the Lord is going to do it. He says, because the cup in the Lord's right hand will come to you and utter disgrace will come upon your glory. Everything that they had built up and amassed to themselves will all be exposed as shameful, and that will come from the cup of justice from God's hand. We tend to think of what happens in situations like this just as warring between peoples. 
We see uh, battles happen. We see people groups rise up against one another. And here we would see, if we could see what was happening in those moments as these nations rose up and the Babylonians were crushed, we would tend to think, well, it's just the revenge of those people against the Babylonians. But no, this was the hand of God. He was pouring out his cup of wrath and justice. He, he had the cup in his hand, and he was forcing them to drink of the cup which they had forced others to drink of. They had committed great violence against not just specific groups, but the Lord points out a specific place here in verse 17. He says, For the violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, and the devastation of its beasts by which you have terrified them because of human bloodshed and violence done to the land, to the town, and all its inhabitants. Over and over again, we see this violence of the Babylonians, but here it speaks specifically to the violence that they had committed in the land of Judah. They had cut down the forest of Lebanon, those beautiful cedars, which we know were used in the construction of the temple and used in many different ways. The beauty of that region, they had gone in, destroyed the forest in order to build their own city. They had gone in and killed all the animal and both man and beast alike. And God says, the violence that you have committed there with the bloodshed, everything that you've done, the, the totality of which, which you destroy that region is now coming back on you. Now, can you imagine for a moment all this time that the Babylonians had been going out and killing, slaughtering people, destroying cities, burning down forests, cutting down trees, killing animals, never thinking that one day they would have to pay for those things, acting in such violence because, again, these are lost people. They are not restrained in their violence We can only imagine how gross and neglectful some of these things were. Can you imagine now for the Babylonians to understand that everything that they had done would now be heaped back upon them? What a terror this would strike into the hearts of those people. But brothers and sisters, the sinful things that men do today is nothing compared to the justice of God that will fall upon them. It's nothing compared to the anger and the wrath of God against sin that will fall upon them if they do not put their faith and trust in Christ. It should strike terror into the hearts of people to understand that we will reap what we sow if we do not have faith and trust in Christ. Now, the final woe that I want you to notice here is the woe of idolatry. And this is really... many commentators believed it saved to last because most of the things of the other things of the way that the Babylonians acted came out of this concept was that they were unto themselves their own God. The idolatry of Babylon not only affected that city, but had spread throughout all the regions because of the false gods, the things that they did there, it spread into all the regions. But notice what he says here in verses 18 and 19. What profit is the idol when its maker has carved it, or an image, a teacher of falsehood, for its maker trusts in his own handiwork when he fashions speechless idols. There's a futility in idolatry because he says, what, what profit is? He says, a man just makes this. He, he takes up and creates his own God. He takes a piece of wood or stone and carves and fashions it and elevates it up. And he says, I'm going to put my trust in this thing that I've made. 
and how futile it is because that thing has no power, it has no ability, it has no strength, it has no glory or splendor. It is a man-made thing. I can get down on the ground and I can put mud and water and all these things together and fashion a thing there and hold it up and say, here's what I'm going to worship, but what's it going to do for me? Nothing. But he goes on, he says, Woe to him who says to a piece of wood, Awake, or to a mute stone, Arise, and that is your teacher. Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all inside of it. It is so foolish, God says, that someone would look to a piece of wood and say, Oh, speak to me, talk to me, and tell me what to do. To a stone being, he would say, Arise, do something. This is who I'm learning from. This is who I'm being instructed by. He says, there's no breath at all inside of it. It is a empty thing. Now, in this day and time, there are not many people who at their home have fashioned their own idol to worship. You don't walk into people's living rooms and see a a wooden figurine that they bow down to. You don't see a stone creature that they've carved that they worship. But people are still guilty of doing this because they create an idol in their own mind of the God that they want to worship. You hear it when you hear people say things like this. Well, the God that I believe in would never send someone to hell. Well, the God that I believe in just accepts everyone as they are, no matter what they do. Well, the God that I believe in does this, or the God that I believe in does this. Now, you have not shaped a piece of wood to worship, but in your mind you have crafted an idol that has no power, no authority, because it is not real. We cannot create for ourselves an own God to worship and think that it will have any power or authority to do anything for us because it's an empty creation of man, and we have no power or authority to do anything. This was the supreme fault of the Babylonians. They had created all of these idols, and the ultimate one was the worship of themselves. They had built an idol unto themselves to worship their own power, to worship their own authority, and God is exposing every bit of it as vacant and empty and pointless. Now, the final verse. The Lord draws it all back to a close here. He says, But the Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. This is a command not only to the heathen, but also to the righteous. They're trusting in all of these things. They're rejecting the acknowledgement of who God is. So God says to the heathen, look and hear and be silent before me. You have no right or authority to speak. You must understand who I am. You must understand my power. And you must be quiet. But to the righteous, he would say the same. Look at me. See my power and my glory and understand my power. And when we do, we also should be silent. Not to question the Lord's doing, not to question his purposes, but to trust and to know that He is God. Psalm chapter 115, But our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. God will accomplish His purposes. God is going to do everything that He has said He's going to do, and He will do it in the perfect timing that He has ordained. And this is what the prophet is receiving from the Lord. 
He says, you've asked the question, Habakkuk. And really what God has given us here is more than he owed us. He, didn't, he doesn't have to tell us his plans. He doesn't have to tell us his purposes. But he has showed grace here to help the prophet understand what's going to happen. And when he gets to the end of all this, he says, the Lord rules and reigns and he will accomplish everything that he has set to pass and let all the earth be silent before him. We are not to question the providences of the Lord. We are not to question his doings. We are to trust him and to know that he is good. One commentator said this, God is not indifferent to sin, and he is not insensitive to suffering. The Lord is neither inactive nor impervious. He is in control. In his perfect time, Yahweh will accomplish his divine purpose. Now we remind ourselves that here the Lord has described everything that's going to happen. He's described his perfect ways, his purposes. He has shown the prophet that he will accomplish justice and perfect and, and justice perfectly. But he still has to wait for it. He still has to wait to see these things come to pass. And in that time of waiting, God is saying, Habakkuk, the nation of Judah, you have to trust me. You have to believe in faith that I am God. You have to have faith in my promises and in my purposes, and you must wait for me to act. And brothers and sisters, the same is true for us today. We know what God is going to do because he's already told us. We've read it in the scriptures. All you have to do is read your Bible. We understand what God is going to do, that one day Jesus will return. And when Jesus returns, it says every eye shall see him and God's perfect kingdom will be fully and totally established here on this earth, that all those who have rejected Christ will, will pay for their sins and that we who have received Christ will be granted everlasting life and peace and joy and happiness and all those things that come along with it forever. But it's not yet. And there's a lot of things that we don't know and understand that are going to unfold between now and then if it happens in our lifetime. And we must trust and we must wait because we know that God is good. The earth is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for the instruction from your word. Lord, help us to trust you. Lord, I know in my own heart I am tempted so often more than, more than I want to readily admit. Lord, to wonder and to question and to and perhaps ask why. But help us, Lord, to trust you, to know your providence, to know your mercy and your grace, your goodness, your power, your splendor. Lord, that all of those things are working to do what you have already ordained to come to pass. Lord, you are not reacting to the world as we react to the world. We turn on the news and we're surprised by something that happens across the globe. But Lord, you knew that it was going to happen before the foundation of the world. You're not taken aback by the responses and the attitudes of men. Because you know you created them. You're using them for your purposes. So Lord, help us to trust. To trust in you, to know who you are. Lord, to not question 
but Lord, to allow your spirit to bring us the comfort that we need in those times. The comfort that comes from faith. Lord, as you said at the beginning of this chapter, that the righteous one will live by faith. Lord, help us to live in such a way to trust you, to know you, and to find everything that we need in you. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name.